when I was growing up, I, so my, my dad, he grew up in Myrtle Beach, like came of age up there. And he was big on like the punk scene and new wave and stuff out there and did a lot of like booking on that front when he was like a teenager and in his early 20s. So I kind of grew up on a mixture of like punk stuff that he was listening to. And my mom was more into like Joni Mitchell and a lot of like folk stuff, Leonard Cohen. And they both had like a shared love of artists like John Prine and Fleetwood Mac and stuff like that. So I I had this mixture of like punk and uh, my dad's a huge Nirvana fan. He saw them when they were like, before they were anything like in 1988, I think. So there was always a lot of Nirvana playing. That was probably the first band that I got really obsessed with. And then, you know, just uh, mom was a huge Beatles fan too. So a lot of that, a lot of the kinks, just a lot of the, the classics, I guess. This is Musicians Can Thrive. A podcast community for anyone seeking to make money in the music industry. Musicians, audio engineers, managers, producers, booking agents, everyone across all niches. Welcome. My name is Gabrielle. I'm a singer-songwriter. These stories are for you. I hope they'll help you find new ways to thrive as a musician. Morgan Davis is an artist manager based out of Austin, Texas. In addition to being the editor-in-chief of the local publication Overload, by merging that publication with his management business, Morgan's able to help a diverse roster of artists that he personally manages, while also amplifying the music of other indie artists, often Austin locals themselves. He's also someone who's been in the trenches as a DIY musician himself. So, it comes in really handy that he knows what it feels like being on both sides of the stage. I actually met Morgan because I occasionally take music business classes at Austin Community College. Mostly because as I become more involved in this podcast, there are gaps in my own knowledge of the music industry. And so I go and educate myself. And thankfully, I just happened to have Morgan come into my class as a guest lecturer. And I was so blown away by the candor with which he described what it's actually like working as an artist in Austin, particularly. I wanted to share his perspective with you guys because I think it's really valuable, particularly when it comes to booking shows and figuring out what the best pacing is. That's going to be most effective for building your audience, but also for earning money to keep everything going. Do you play any instruments? How did you first get involved with music? So I had started playing on guitar. And when I was in middle school and high school, it was always very difficult to find bass players or drummers. So with a little like crew of kids that I played music with, um, we all ended up learning how to play as many instruments as possible because we just got so tired of trying to find drummers to play with us. Mm. For, first drummer that we would play with was this like local juvenile delinquent who was always in trouble. So, <laughs> uh, but 
you know, whenever he was not available, we would all kind of jump on the drums. So I, guitar and bass are my primary instruments, but I also can play synth and drums. So I've played pretty much in all those positions for different bands. And I used to be the like singer songwriter in most of the bands that I was in. And uh, when I had moved to Austin, I had kind of gotten frustrated with trying to find other reliable musicians. It was kind of depressing how much it became like when I was growing up. So, so I just kind of started recording all the things on my own. And then I was playing in a couple groups here and after they'd fallen apart for different reasons, I kind of took a break from, from playing music. Uh, and I didn't start playing live music again until I was working with Katie rain. And she, had, when I first started working with her, her live band was her co-singer songwriter or co-songwriter and um, another friend of theirs that was on bass and her and that songwriter were also dating and their relationship fell apart and their collaboration fell apart. So we had to assemble a, a whole new backing band, which was kind of a blessing in a way because uh, one of my top priorities when working with her was of trying to get a more dynamic stage show for her, especially in Austin. I felt like it needed more instrumentation to kind of get more attention from the scene here. Mm. So we assembled that, but again, there was the problem of trying to find reliable bassists. So I, I ended up being the bassist and in Katie's band as well as managing her. But at this point in time, we're more focused on management and behind the scenes, but I love playing with Katie. She's an incredible performer and the live shows that I play with her, like by far, the best live experiences I think I've ever had. Wow. That's awesome. So how did you get from enjoying being on stage and wanting to be on stage to getting involved as a manager of artists? So when I was first getting involved in music, I came from a very DIY background. I was like growing up outside of Houston and we were on like the outskirts, not really in an area where you could be doing, you know, just like it's, it, it wasn't like Austin where you could just go and play beer land. If you were a baby band, uh, we had to basically make our own shows happen. So we would do house shows. And then that kind of escalated to like booking like youth centers and stuff like that. And getting experienced with all the stuff that goes into booking a show just by necessity. And then we were also doing like our own posters. And, and that was like the point in time where everyone would make CDRs. So we were always like making our own CDRs and putting labels on them. And our bands were, were terrible. Like it was just, you know, we were like 12 or 13, 14. So this is just terrible music, but we would make these CDRs and put all the art and label stuff on them and like sell them to our peers <laughs> And from there, we started to learn more about the actual like practicality of it. But it was great experience because I, I learned how to do everything. I learned how to record. Um, so we were doing home recording and, you know, we were kids. We didn't really have a lot of resources. The first recording program I got was given to me by a couple of people who worked on the distance learning stuff at the high school I went to, who just happened to be music nerds. And they also donated a bunch of like gear that they didn't need anymore. I think because they just saw like, oh, you know, these kids are trying. So 
let's give them some stuff. And then eventually that escalated to like getting booked at places like Fitzgerald's and other like real venues in Houston and getting more familiar with what goes into that and learning more about the actual music industry. So for me, it had always been this thing of in the groups, I was usually the one that took point on communicating with bookers, sticking around to get paid, uh, making sure that we were getting paid the right amount, getting a better understanding of like how you protect yourself in that learning about like bar cuts and stuff. So it was this kind of like crash course in music industry. And I was always really into that part of it. So after I kind of gravitated more towards behind the scenes stuff, it just kind of like made sense. And after college, I had done a lot of work in, I used to work for places like Sasquatch Music Festival and other events like that at my day job. And then on the side, I was also doing freelancing in music media. So it was just kind of one of those things where I had a bunch of different interests and fascinations with all those different areas of music. So it just kind of eventually built up to me being a manager because I spent all those years and all the resources and time kind of like learning all these different things and kind of figured out that I had a lot that I could bring to the table for newer artists who were developing who hadn't gone through all that yet or didn't know the things to look out for or the red flags or best practices. Basically it was, it was like decades of making mistakes is what led to it. <laughs> well, the mistakes learned to valuable knowledge. Oh yeah. It sounds like a very natural evolution then from finding all the different things that you enjoyed being involved with. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I always tell people that I never set out to be a manager. It just kind of happened that way. It was, especially when you, when you see people who are really talented and who are maybe younger or maybe don't have as much experience for one reason or another, and you want to help them avoid making the same mistakes you did or that your friends did, or, you know, you, you, once you've seen a lot and have seen all the ways that things can go wrong and how things could be done better, you kind of want to spread that message, you know, because mm-hmm. it's never <laughs> fun to watch someone struggle. You know, you want to, or at least if you're a good person, you don't want to watch someone struggle. Yeah. That's exactly why I started making this podcast. Yeah. If we could just circle back for a second, for those who are not familiar with a CDR, what is that? <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, back, Back in the day, I guess it, they would have first really started coming up when when Napster and everything was a thing. So basically, when computers had CD drives on them, uh, you could <laughs> you could put a disc in there and you could burn music. And burning music was basically like putting it on the disc, and you could either make it as an MP3 CD or it could be an audio CD. And you would make these, you could make your recordings at home and then burn them to disc right away. And then you could just keep making copies of it. And you could also buy these like towers that basically would, they would take one master CD and then they would make, you know, like six or 12 or however many more had that many more disc ports on it. So you could just be making all these. So if you were like in a punk band or if you were a a hip hop artist, CDRs were like your lifeblood because you could just be making them on your own. You didn't need to like manufacture anything. And then you could just like give them out at shows or you could sell them the street. It used to be that when you would go to South by the streets of Austin would be littered with CDRs. <laughs> there were like just CDRs everywhere. And they were always, 
they could hold like they were they were kind of like mixtapes they were just like the the next logical step of mixtapes so instead of being on tape they were on disc um but you could also get these little like printed sticker labels to make it look like a a real manufactured cd especially if you had like a laser printer or whatever but they went away once people started being able to just put their music up on like soundcloud or bandcamp or whatever okay so it's just like a homemade cd basically yes yes it's a because it's cd recording Okay, nice. I've just never heard that acronym before. So I was like, okay, if I don't know, there's a lot of other people who also are not going to know. Yeah, I mean, like they they were just mixtapes, but just instead of tape, they were on disc. But, you know, you could fit more music on it. So so if you were a punk kid who was making hundreds of songs for no reason, you could jam <laughs> on 80 minutes of music on there. Oh, yeah. Saturate your ears. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> I love it. So one of the things that I've been exploring as I talk to different musicians and people involved in music is there are some artists who are very uncomfortable with actually getting paid for their art because maybe they feel like they're not good enough or they feel like it sort of taints the art and makes it not as creative or worthy of admiration. So how do you help the artists that you work with navigate that? Cause we do need the money to put back into the art. Yeah, that's a, that's a big thing. It, pretty much every artist, when I start working with them, that's a struggle. I think that it's a couple things that are at play. One of it is that we have this idea that you should be struggling for your art at all times. And that, you know, you're supposed to be the broke artist. And, you know, if you are, bringing money into it, then you're corrupting it somehow. I think for me in particular, it's always difficult with artists because they they don't want to ask to get paid for shows. They kind of hope that the venue will just give them money without them talking about it. Mm. And I have to tell artists that if you don't ask for it, you're not going to get it. Like, <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Because uh, the way that bookers and venues look at that stuff is, is that if you're not asking for payment, then they're not going to bring it up because that's just one less line item on the budget for them. <laughs> so usually when I work with artists, they, uh, there's a thing in the industry called a guarantee. Guarantee is what you are guaranteed to get paid for a show. So one of my first questions when I start working with someone is, you know, what, what is your current guarantee? And I usually have them tell me the different levels of it if they have one. A lot of times artists I work with don't even have a guarantee. When I was first working with Katie Rain, she didn't have one set. So I had to implement a guarantee for her and I had to kind of do this guesswork of what it should be based on her draw, based on what was going on. Uh, when things like her getting booked for ACL happened, obviously that impacted our market value. But the the thing with artists is they always think if they ask for a guarantee, then they're going to lose shows because the venue is just going to not want to work with them. And it's it's quite the opposite. Most artists, when you start asking for a guarantee, it communicates to the venue that you have a value and that you know your value. As long as you're smart about it, if you you know if you ask for ten thousand dollars and you can only draw ten people to a show, then you're not going to get that. But as long as you're you've done your homework and you've you know tested it out and checked all the variables. It usually lets a promoter know, okay, this is a person who's legit. They're going to put time and effort into it. And 
it also is never a thing that's just like once you say it, they either say yes or no. There's usually wiggle room. So usually they'll work with you. They'll be like, well, we can't necessarily make that work. Could you make this work? So for a lot of artists, I have to tell them like, they're not going to just like say no, unless they were someone you didn't want to work with in the first place. Anyone who's trying to make you feel bad about asking for your own worth is not someone that you want to be working with in this industry, no matter what. But yeah, I, I think for a lot of artists, you know, it's just like, do you pay for your equipment or do you get your equipment for free? You know, do the, the people that are working the venue, are they there for free? No, all the bartenders, all the production staff, the people who booked it, everyone else is getting paid. Why wouldn't you get paid too? And it's the same thing with, with making your music, you know, like your fans are paying for stuff. Like when they go see a movie, they're paying for a ticket. Even if they're watching something on Netflix or Hulu or whatever, they're, they're paying for that subscription or someone is paying for that subscription, you know? And so I think that you kind of, if you aren't allowing yourself to have that discussion about what your stuff is worth, then you're just communicating to people that it has no worth and that it's free and that, you know, they shouldn't put a value to it, uh, which is especially a problem in Austin. Other cities that I've lived in, artists are not as bad about that. It's really, yeah. Like I, I would say that Austin by far is the city that seems to struggle with this the most. And I think part of that is because of the saturation and the fact that so many venues here have no cover or it's like a donation suggested cover. And that, I mean, that's a whole other thing, but I don't know. It, it just seems that like for, for whatever reason here, people have this kind of allergy to the idea that music should be something that you can make a living from. God, the irony of that just hits me so hard because Austin's developed this reputation through all kinds of marketing of being the live music capital of the world. And so we should support the artists that live here and that come here. That's, oh, that's so obnoxious. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing that those of us working in the industry side of Austin have struggled with for a long time. And I think that's also a big part of why we don't have as much infrastructure here as we should. There's not really as many people working behind the scenes as you would expect from a city with as much music as Austin and one that has such an economy of music. Like if you're in Seattle or Nashville um, or LA or New York, you know, like there's, there's tons of industry there to help you have a career. But in Austin, we, we, I mean, we, we didn't get BMI out here until last year. So, you know, and that was a huge, huge get, (laughs) but you know, there's not, there's not really a lot of talent agencies. There's not really a lot of management firms. There's not really, a lot of entertainment lawyers or any of the things that help an economy grow in a musical sense here. But it's, I mean, it's changing. It's, it's getting better. And and there are people who seem to think that if those things come here, then it's going to ruin music or whatever. But I don't know. I just think that if everyone else, but the musicians is profiting from it, then that's a significant problem. And that's kind of what's happening here is that everyone else is making lots of money off of it you know, real estate companies are making money off the music. Venues are making money off the music. Liquor companies, 100% for sure, you know. So Mm -hmm. why wouldn't you want to advocate on your own behalf to get paid for what you do? But that's why you want someone like a manager so that you're not having to deal with those conversations anyway. My artists don't even, none of them even get involved in 
discussing anything about payment anymore, um, unless it's like something that a friend of theirs has set up or whatever. But, but you know, I, I found that that's what you kind of need someone like a manager in your team for is because they're the ones who are going to have those difficult decisions and they're the ones who are going to negotiate. So you don't have to get your hands dirty with all that stuff. Mm. Definitely helpful to have an ally as you're trying to be taken more seriously as a professional that's worthy of being paid. Exactly. So for those artists who are still starting out pretty small and don't yet have help like a manager, how do they go about sort of calculating what they're worth being paid? How do they ask for that? Well, one of the prime ways to look at it is how many people are you bringing to your show? So let's say that you on a good night bring 50 people out and you know that the average cover is $5. And let's say that each of those people spends, I don't know, $10 on their bar tab, or maybe we just make it easier and just say that they spend $5 because not everyone's going to get a drink. But either way, that's about $500 of revenue that you can say you are bringing in. So you're going to want to ask for somewhere in the ballpark of like 200 to $400 on that. Leave a little bit of cushion for then you make a profit, but that's kind of where you want to set it. And you can go a little bit below that, or you can ask for more if you know that it's, you know, like, let's say you've got something that you know is happening. Like when we have the ACL booking where, you know, like we're going to have a lot more publicity going on. So that makes us more valuable because we're going to be promoted everywhere. But you, you just kind of want to look at things like that. Just like how many people are you bringing out? Uh, are, do you have a drinking crowd? Are they a crowd that, you know, spends a lot of money at the bar and if you're getting a lot of offers for shows, then that's going to tell you that there is a demand for you. But one of the biggest problems with Austin artists is that they overbook themselves. So in Austin, I'll see bands that will be playing multiple t- times in one week, which is one of the worst things you can be doing here because most of our venues are all saturated. in this, They're all in the same spot, basically. They're all along Red River or they're close to it. So if you're playing three nights in one week and your draw is 50 people, then you need to divide that draw by three and you're no longer drawing 50 people out. You're drawing out one third of that to each of those shows or less because those people might be like, well, they play all the time. So there's no real reason for me to come out tonight. I can just catch them later. There's no demand. So you want to be mindful of those things. You want to make sure that every show you're doing is an actual event. uh, Unless it's something like you opening for a band that has a much larger audience then you know, you don't need to necessarily factor your draw into that. And that's going to encourage you to maybe take less payment or take no payment at all. If it's something that you know is going to expand your audience, but yeah, I mean, you want to be smart about it. You know, you want to be doing things like actually promoting the show, like talking about it longer than the day of, you know, are you posting about it on all of your platforms? Have you maximized, your draw on platforms. If you only have 37 likes on Facebook, then you know, you're probably not at a level where you can actually ask for a guarantee yet. All those things play into it, but you you just want to make sure that you've done everything in your power to make it clear to anyone who's booking you that you're going to do the work and that you're going to bring out people and that you're not going to 
sabotage your own draw by booking another show the day after or that you're not going to promote or you're going to forget about it or you're going to show up late or any of those. You want to be professional. Yeah, for sure. One of the things that I sort of had a lot of assumptions about as I started booking shows myself was this feeling like in order to be taken seriously, you need to be able to say, oh, I'm playing this many times a month or this many times a week and have it be like some impressively large number. But it sounds like that ends up hurting you because then one, you don't get paid as much for the individual gigs, but then the demand goes down. So how do you juggle that balance? Where's like the sweet spot of shows to book? I mean, realistically in a city like Austin, you should not be playing more than once a month. Uh, Anyone who's doing more than that is making an incredible mistake unless it's, you know, I mean, there are people who will give excuses for why they do that, but it's never, it's just honestly never a good idea. No one in booking likes that. If they see that you're booking a lot more, they're less inclined to book you or they're less inclined to pay you because they know that you're not really going to bring any, anything out. You're just a warm body. The other thing that's frustrating about that too, is that Austin is so central that if you really, really feel the need to be playing that often, you should be going outside of Austin. You should be playing San Marcos. You should be playing Round Rock. You should be playing Denton. You should be playing San Antonio. I mean, San Antonio is super close. So, you know, if you're doing four shows a month and each of those is in the vicinity of Austin, but not in Austin, that's different. That's good. That that grows Mm -hmm. your audience. But Austin is not a city that realistically has different districts like there's just not at least when it comes to entertainment like there is red river and then there's a handful of venues that are scattered everywhere else but even those are not far enough to make it so that you're not going to have the same audience you're you're just cannibalizing your draw the more you play out uh it's not like new york where you have different boroughs that you can be playing because like the people who are in manhattan are not going to come to brooklyn and vice versa (laughs) yeah too much effort. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but here when it's like, well, I'm playing Hotel Vegas and then I'm playing Cheer Up Charlie's and then I'm playing Mohawk and then I'm playing Barracuda and then I'm playing Empire. Like those are all within less than a mile of each other. What it really communicates here to people who follow you is just that, you know, you, uh, you're playing all the time. So they don't need to exert any real effort to going to see you because they're just expecting you to be there again. It's kind of like, you know, if you, if there was a, I, I, there's not really like a, a comparable example, like in other fields, it's, it's very much like a music thing, but it'd be like if the Super Bowl happened every month, you know, no one would care. It wouldn't mean anything. <laughs> like, it's just like, okay, you know, like, or like if the Olympics were happening on a weekly basis rather than every four years, like there, it just takes away anything that's special about it. And then the other thing too, is that you want to be mindful of who you're doing shows with are you playing with the same group of artists over and over and over? And if so, why? Because if you're doing that, you're not really getting a new audience. You want to try to branch out and find other people. It's perfectly good to have a group of artists that you do stuff with and you collaborate with and you all share resources and team up, but you don't want to be playing on the same bill, which is another thing I see artists in Austin do all the time is that you'll look at a show and it's like, this is the exact same lineup as last week 
<laughs> like what, what is different now? Why would I go to this show? So you want to be mindful of that. You want to like make connections. You want to try to find new audiences. You know, if there's a touring band coming through and you want to get your buddy bands together to help them, that's different because at least you're making a connection with someone who's not from here that you could then branch out with. But if you're just playing with your friends over and over, like you guys might as well just be playing in your living room. You're not, you're not really making any new relationships there. And the other thing too, is that for a lot of artists, I think that they, they too often view shows as, as kind of like practice. And so they think that if they just do a whole bunch of them, then it's, you know, they're getting better because they're playing more, but you're really not. Cause you're not hearing new feedback. You're not finding out, whether your songs are actually clicking with anyone outside of your immediate circle, you would be better off spending that time going to other people's shows and making connections with them and getting yourself familiar with the bookers and the live sound people and media and stuff like that, rather than just doing the same show three different ways every other week. Hmm. I can see how that would be a lot more helpful in that long game of really expanding your reach. Yeah. And I mean, you know, in Austin, there are a lot of great opportunities to expand your audience pretty easily considering that we're a college town. So the students that are here, you know, that changes every year. You've got a new influx of students. So playing campus parties, playing all the co-ops and stuff like that. Those are always good because, uh, you know, that's a for real brand new untapped audience who are then going to go back to wherever they were because all those students, I mean, other than the ones who live here, they're going to go back home over the summer or over winter break or whatever. And they're going to talk about this band that they saw and play them on Spotify and all that. So, so that's an audience that's growing all the time and you should be, it's a good, good thing to focus on because that's the way that you build a following is you get those people out. Most of the groups that you see from Austin that are doing really, really well, like Dayglow, it's because they focused on that, that college audience and played that circuit and all those people then spread out and told everyone and it grew from there. Hmm. Yeah. I remember when I used to live on West campus, I would see posters for bands playing shows either at frat parties or at a co-op and it's, there's just something about having all these people in this sort of neighborhood vicinity where a lot of people cross over and talk about music or talk about, oh, I'm going to go to this party this weekend. It, yes. It really helps trying to get that word of mouth promotion. Yeah. And, and that's an audience that likes to be on top of things, you know? So that's a group of people. They're not as jaded. They're more likely to talk up what they're listening to, more likely to follow it. They want to be there before everyone else is. So that's, the best possible market for you to go after. That's why so much of the music industry is focused on trying to get in with like high school and college students, because that's where you forge lifelong followings. Mm. I've heard you talk about this before and I found it really interesting. So would you be willing to talk a little bit more about how that specific age range helps you build those lifelong fans? Yeah, for sure. A lot of it is just because when you are that age, you are more passionate, you're more receptive, you're more experimental, 
you know, it's a time in your life where you're, you're testing out new things and you're discovering more about yourself and there's a lot of enthusiasm. And as you grow older, uh, you are going to continue to go back to things that you found during that time. That's why people, I mean, you'll see that, I mean, how many people that are like our parents age are still into like eighties bands or, or nineties bands or whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, like, <laughs> like your mom probably has like a group that, that she loved from that time that she still loves and would probably still pay hundreds of dollars to go see if they were to reunite or whatever. And that just goes to show like how, how profound that relationship can be when you, you get a fan at that age, like you've essentially got them for life as long as you don't mess it up. Uh, so that's always the, where you want to put a lot of your focus if you can, not that you should alienate other audiences, but just that if you have the opportunity to be playing in those realms, you should, you should do it and you should do it as often as possible. And in Texas, we, I mean, we have so many campuses here that there's, it's just so easy to just go out to all these different areas and get that. And um, the other thing that I always tell artists too, is that when you're playing campuses, if you're playing like a student union building or any official campus event that's booked by the student body, they pay way better. They, cause they don't, they don't have to make money. They don't, they don't care about making money because they get a budget and that budget is based on how much they spent the year before. So if they don't spend it, they get, less they don't get as much money the next year so so you've got a built-in audience that is hungry for music that you get paid better to play to and that changes constantly so it's just it's a perfect storm of variables there that is going to help you really grow a passionate following that's going to stick with you for a while and there are different ways to do it but i found that actually playing on or near campus is usually the the best way to get in with them because that's just, it, it, there's just something about that live experience that creates a memory for people because it has everything. I mean, there's, there's the audio component of it too, but you're also going to remember being around your friends and, you know, whatever other good memories come out of that. So it's, it's just one of those things where you can just, it's still a better way to, to effectively win over people than asking someone to boost your song on, SoundCloud or Instagram or whatever. It's just not, it, you can get fans that way, but it's just not as real of a connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's one of the things I've noticed with all of the live stream shows that people have been doing now is it's wonderful to see an artist. If you already know that you like them and you want to support them because you know that they're hurting right now, but you only, well, not only, but most of the time you already like an audi- an artist because you've been to a live show and you have those memories of feeding off the energy of the crowd and, you know, singing along with your friends or interacting with the artist when they go, I want you to say this. And then you sing it back or. Exactly. Yeah. Whatever. I mean, music is still very much a communal thing. And when you don't have the live component, you, you miss out on that because I mean, there is a, there's a physical feeling that comes from it too. Like when you're in a show and you can feel the bass, like literally hitting you in the chest, you know, that mm-hmm. that's a thing that, I mean, they've done lots of studies on it. It's just something that just can't really be replicated any other way. And yeah, I mean, it, I agree with you completely on the live stream stuff. I, that's also why I, I, I bring this up on like everything I'm on now and I'm just going to keep doing it until 
more people listen. But that's why I think Twitch is a much better platform for musicians to be focused on because it, it has a built-in audience and that audience is already there from other stuff but is looking for other things. It's not like Facebook where you have to like go directly to the person's page or IG where you have to go directly to the person's page. On Twitch, there's all these different channels and it's still primarily a video game platform, but that means that they're the platform itself is putting more energy towards trying to get other people to see the non-video games that are coming on there because they don't want to be perceived as strictly video games. They, they want people to treat them as a, a whole cultural hub. So it's not oversaturated right now. There's not enough musicians on it. It has a much larger streaming audience than any other platform. And on top of that, their monetization is way better because they've gamified pain people so like if you if you throw a tip at an artist on facebook there's no real way for that to pop up yet you know it's not very easy like an artist has to say here's my paypal or venmo info and -hmm. then you can go and do it on twitch it's all like connected on there and they create little tokens so like the whole screen lights up when you do it and it tells everyone this person just put this money in and now they get a badge you get like a special little icon and the more you donate the more avatars and filters and whatever you get so so it gives people an actual like endorphin rush every time they do it because everyone can see it and (laughs) it's that's the thing that has been proven over and over again that that is the most effective thing with getting people to keep doing something it's it's kind of like like if you pay attention to the game sphere there's this issue right now with loot boxes and and people um essentially like sinking tons of money into these loot boxes because they just like the feeling of when the loot box like opens and they get new stuff and maybe it's something new that they've wanted or maybe it's just garbage, but they'll just keep getting them. So Twitch is like kind of a lesser evil version of that where it's, it does that to getting people to actually pay money for art. So mm. when you, when you give an artist a tip on there, you don't know what's going to happen exactly. You just know it's going to be a cool effect and that it's that cool things are going to happen. So, you know, it makes people feel good about it. And other people see it, which is another way to actually get people to pay things is if everyone else can see that they've done the good thing. (laughs) Tap into that herd mentality. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why I keep pushing people because I'm like, it's the best possible way to get it as a musician because like it's, it's made it a game for people to pay you. Like why, why won't you adopt it? It's great. We've made it about halfway through the show and we're going to have a quick pause. Ads are irritating distractions, so they'll never be a part of the Musicians Can Thrive podcast. Thank you for listening. So make sure you get new episodes as soon as I release them. Subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. I'm so glad I get the honor of sharing these musicians' stories, and it would mean a lot if you would be willing to help me share them. Spotify has this awesome feature where you can share podcast episodes directly to Instagram stories. So if you're willing... Tell your followers about your favorite episode. Last thing. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leaving a quick review helps other musicians learn about Musicians Can Thrive. I appreciate your support. Back to the show. I've actually had another mentor of mine mention the potential for people to use Twitch for live streaming shows and that was at this point almost two years ago and had I only known what was coming (laughs) you know yeah 
I mean, if all of us had. I don't think, because most, it's a struggle to get artists to want to do any of these things because, um, I mean, even if you're, even if you're the top of the game on live streaming as an artist, you're still not making anywhere near as much money from live streaming as you were from your shows. So, you know, it, it, it's got that aspect of people, it, it's never going to be a replacement for a live show in any way, shape or form, not financially, not from a user experience level. It's, it's not going to replace it, but there are ways to approach it. And there are platforms that are better situated for it than others. And I think with artists, they're more comfortable with like Facebook and Instagram because that's their built in fan base that they already know. And so if you've already been doing stuff on there, you don't necessarily want to go try another platform, even if it has a brand new audience, because it's it's not as comfortable for you and it's not maybe not as easy or whatever. But I think that that's a mistake. I think it's the same thing as like overlooking certain towns. Like a lot of artists don't think that they should be playing small towns because like, oh, well, there's way more people in Austin and it's so easy for me to get a show in Austin. Why would I think about playing in, I don't know, Kyle or Salado? And the reason why you would do that is because like the people out there, they're starved for entertainment. There's because there's not as much stuff. So if you play mm-hmm. those small towns, they're going to remember it and you're not competing with as much stuff. Yeah. And it's the same thing right now with Twitch where you're going to stand out because there just aren't very many artists on there. And the people who are on there for like games and stuff, like they're going to be excited about there being something different. If, as long as you play your cards right and you, you do what you can and, to draw them in and you reach out to people who are already successful on the platform to try to like collaborate so that they can send their audience over to you. But, but everyone on Twitch is like wanting more people on Twitch anyway. So if you're an artist and you're saying, Hey, I don't have very many Twitch followers yet, but I have all these music fans and maybe we can bring our audiences together. You know, they'll go for that. Um, or even if it's just a thing, like I, I keep telling artists, it's like, you know, go find someone who does, speed runs on games and you know if you're a really incredible guitarist just say that you're gonna jam the whole time they're doing a speed run and just solo the whole time to someone trying to beat sonic as quickly as possible <laughs> and that people would love that it's like an easy thing to do on there but clever um, but yeah someone i mean that's to do that i i keep i keep pushing for one of my artists in particular to do that because he would be great at it. He's a big video game fan too. And I'm just like, come on. Oh, that's like perfect. A- I know. Yeah. So Cole, if you're listening. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Hop on that. <laughs> yes. There was a cool breeze in the air that night. First time you took my hand. I saw the spark in your eyes so wild Windows down, 65 through the heartland I've had enough of this small town I heard you say We were young and afraid Losing time, wasting away I heard they're free in the next town Wild way We threw ourselves into the
The song you're listening to right now is called The Getaway and is the newest release from the band Goons. The last time you held my hand. Cole from Goons. His whole band is all about like video game imagery and stuff. I'm like, Twitch is perfect for you. Please just get on there. Oh yeah, that's such a natural next step. But it's it's new and it's different. I get it. So yeah, most, most of the people who are musicians who are on there right now are like beat makers. Uh, a lot of the like chill lo-fi beats to study to crowd is over there because they're a little smarter about these things and they're doing wonderful on it. So uh, like feedback Alliance is a local collective that's been doing stuff on there. And there's just a lot of it, people who are, who have realized what it's capable of are reaping the benefits. And um, especially cause like you don't even, you don't even have to do music. You can just talk. You can nerd out about production settings if you want to. And people, people will love that. Because most of the people who are doing video games on there, it's not like they're the best video game players in the world. People just like hearing them talk. <laughs> yeah, like just my 13-year-old brother and his friends talking shit. <laughs> exactly, yeah. We, you know, we did an event with Overload one year that was streamed on Twitch. And uh, in between the bands playing, I was conducting interviews with people. And I was doing an interview with Taz from Blaxploitation. And he's like, we're on Twitch, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I just need to talk shit about this one guy keeps killing me in call of duty and he's like <laughs> shouting out the guy's gamer tag and he's like i want everyone to find this guy and mess him up in call of duty like come join me here's my gamer tag and that was the single moment where we got the most tips coming through on the channel everyone's like yeah taz we're gonna go get that guy for you and <laughs> and he didn't know like until after and i was like do you know how much like money you just got in tips just from going on this rant about this gamer that you don't like Wow. I was like, really? I was like, yes, man. Like, you should you should do that more often. I was like, you just like. <laughs> so it brings in just the human connection as well as the performance. Well, yeah, because everyone on that stream is like, I know someone like that that kicks my ass every single time in Call of Duty. <laughs> so, so everyone was into it, and they and everyone was like, I'm gonna add you. I'm gonna, you know, we'll, we'll help help you get them. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Video game players love music and they they pick certain songs to go along with their videos that they post on their YouTube channel or in the background of their live stream. Well, yeah, most people don't realize that like with those game things, like they, they can't use the music from the games because that's all copyrighted. Like they, they keep getting hit with like suits over that. So if you're a musician and you're like, hey, I'll I'll play along and make some music for you while you do this, they would love that. So it, it's just a... It's a natural fit, and especially because most of the music that's in video games now, it's you know, it's it fits in with like most of the modern like pop and electronic stuff that's being made. If you're a folk artist, it might be a little bit harder, but but they also love things on there. Like there's there's one guy on there. One of their like first successes was a, a guy who just like played piano, and he would tell people on the stream just like you know, give me an idea and I'll make a song about it. So he would just spend a couple hours just making nonsense songs on piano based on what people were commenting in the thread so you know ah. like so you can do you don't have to that's what you, people just like anything that's kind of like just fun and entertaining uh it doesn't have to be like a whole like show or whatever yeah well lots of potential there yes especially while we're all in quarantine exactly yeah now's the perfect time to experiment with that stuff because you can't be doing shows anyway so you might as well go and try the different things and find the one that fits for you. Cause another thing I always tell artists is that if you're, if you're doing something and it, it doesn't work for you, then you know, it doesn't work. There's plenty of other things to, 
to go on, but you, you have to at least experiment. It's the same thing when you're writing a song, you know, you're, you're going to play around with different chord changes. You're going to play with different styles, different rhythms, and you have to be willing to experiment in order to be able to get something successful. But artists, a lot of times, no matter how willing they are to experiment in music, it seems like if something frustrates them with a different field, like promotion, they just kind of are like, well, I just don't want to do it. And it's like, okay, but you know, there, there are others. It's, there's <laughs> as many different options out there as there are like options for amps or guitars or any of that. Yeah. In some ways, all those options become a little overwhelming. So wading through them is the challenge. Yeah, they do. And I mean, I don't think anyone, it, no one actually likes promotion. No one really, I mean, I'm sure there are some people who do. I shouldn't say no one, but most <laughs> people don't like doing any of that stuff. Most people don't like answering emails, but they, you know, they're necessary. If you are wanting this to be a career, like you have to be doing things to grow your audience. You have to be doing things to make the right connections. You have to be networking, stuff like that. And the networking in particular is like a hard one right now when you can't go to mixers, you can't go to events and music is very much a face-to-face who do you know industry. So that stuff is very difficult right now. And I don't know that anyone has really created a, a solution for that yet. Other than I guess maybe um, some of these like live stream panels and everything, but, but even that, I, I don't, I don't necessarily know that that's helping anyone foster connections or make new relationships or anything. So yeah, it's hard to form a relationship when you're just sitting listening to someone talk. Yeah. I mean, what I've been encouraging artists right now to do is uh, I don't think they realize how badly media has been hit by this. There's a lot of critics and journalists who have been laid off. So I keep encouraging artists. I was like, you know, you, the same thing as you asking everyone to to pitch in a dollar for your band camp when it's Bandcamp waves your fee day or whatever. Uh, you should be looking at some of these out of work music journalists and stuff. And in, in media, everyone uses a thing called coffee, K O F I. And that's like kind of a donation. So people put it at the end of their articles, cause you don't get paid very much when you're writing at pitchfork. Uh, you don't get paid very much when you're writing at Rolling Stone. Uh, it's all like freelance stuff. So all those artists have these little things set up for people to fund them or they have Patreons. I was like, you know, it'd be good to take some of the money that you get back from stuff and put into their campaigns. Cause they're going to remember that. And eventually there's going to be publications again. And if you were someone who threw them a bone during this time, they're going to remember it more when you reach out to try to get some coverage for your single or album or whatever. Mm. Now that is a great idea. Kind of helps coming from all these different backgrounds where I can just be like, I know what it's like on the other side of this. <laughs> Yeah, it comes in very handy. So while we're on the subject of media, you mentioned the company Overload that you're involved with. I'd love to hear the story behind starting that and bringing in your management work as well as the music media side. Yeah, so Overload was started by a guy named Carter DeLauro, and he had started it in 2011. And then there were a couple other people that started it with him, I believe, but Carter was the the primary contact. And so Carter had reached out to me, I want to say in like 2012, 2013, I don't even know, about doing some journalism 
for them because I was at that point in time focused more on like investigative journalism and what's called long form writing, which is like features, interviews, stuff like that. Uh, so I had done some stuff for, for overload, overload. The first like big thing that I did for them was a, a feature on pay to play and pay to play becoming a much larger problem in Austin. And that story kind of blew up and, you know, we were on NPR with it and it led to a lot of other reporting on the issue. And it also led to some changes in city legislation. So that was kind of like my first big thing with overload. And not too long after that, Carter got a job working in admissions for Stanford. And obviously you don't turn that down. So he relocated and he asked me to take over as uh, the managing editor at that point with him still involved in a publishing role. And I agreed, but also asked that we kind of expand it to be more of a multimedia organization because I have been wanting to do use overload as like more of an advocacy organization. So working on behalf of artists, uh, both through booking and through working behind the scenes on a like city politics level and just trying to advocate for, for musicians and music professionals in Austin more. So that kind of led to doing more shows. And at one point we were doing our own DIY festival and then also working on uh, like documentary work. Uh, And then that kind of like eventually turned into me managing artists and taking on a roster on that front. We still do the publication end of it. Uh, I just kind of personally have been more burned out on the media end of things just because of how everything has been going. Before I was managing artists, I was running Overload while also doing a writer's collective called Loser City, which was focused on trying to help train and mentor writers who are coming from marginalized backgrounds to help get them placed at larger entities like Pitchfork and Vice and Vox and things like that. And we were successful at that, but the frustration was that even though we achieved our basic aims of getting more people on these rosters and getting them in positions, and also we were pretty successful at getting a lot of information out there about what was going on with rates and a lot of the discriminatory behaviors exhibited by publishers and editors and things that were locking people out. Um, it, the entire media industry started to kind of like crumble. <laughs> so even though a lot of these people that we are working with achieved their dreams of like writing for Pitchfork or, you know, having a byline at Rolling Stone or whatever, they were finding that they were just so disgusted by how that industry operated and by what was going on with the industry and um, a lot of the mergers and stuff that were happening that were causing everyone to become freelance and that there just were no staff positions anymore. So other than a couple of people, pretty much all of us kind of like quit music writing or just culture writing in general one by one because <laughs> it was just so depressing uh, and all focused on other things. So um, I still like work with new writers and try to like, train people, but it's harder now for me in good conscience to tell someone, yes, you should explore a career in media. I don't know that I can really do that anymore unless it's someone just doing a thing as like a passion project on the side. But, you know, it's, I mean, like, what would you think someone gets paid for like a review at Pitchfork or a feature? 
Hmm. Well, see, my day job is a marketer and I spend a lot of time copywriting. So they probably don't get paid very much because there's a lot of editors out there who really want to cheap out on their freelance writers. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, you're looking at like getting paid like $150 for like a, a main feature. And then on top of that, you're having to like chase down an invoice for like several months and, you know, and, and it, and of course of, you can't bill them for those hours. <laughs> no, although there's some organizations that are like trying to help on that now, but now it's this whole thing of like all these companies are saying, well, we just don't have any money anymore. And it's like, well, I mean, that's technically true, but that's because you blew it on dumb shit or did <laughs> bad things. But yeah, so it, it just got to be one of those things where someone would come back and be like, is this really the rate that I'm going to get paid? Is this, is this what you're seeing from other people? And it's like, unfortunately, yes. Or, oh, you got $250? Well, you're on the higher end of it. So congrats, yeah. you know? And it's uh, just like, there's no real way to make a living off of that unless you you have some independent source of income from something else or your, you know, your partner has a lot of money or, you know, which is why you see the same people always in these positions. It's usually people who have like trust funds or who come from some sort of dynasty or whatever. <laughs> so, and it, it, it also was like frustrating because everyone always says that they, they want media that takes more risk and covers independent artists and talks about things other than, you know, whatever the top 40 is. But then the reality of it is that the people, they don't, they don't read that. They don't, click on it. They don't share it. They don't support it. A good example that I'll give is that there's a local publication that does like their, their year in stuff that they'll say is like, these are the best albums by Austin musicians this year. And it'll have no commentary. It'll just say the name and the artist. Oh, <laughs> and that's sad. Artist, it is. It's, it's really sad. And uh, at overload, we've always done a lot of work of like trying to give like real, writing for that so we don't just say something is like top of the year we we write about everything so that there's like quotes for it and we try to put it in context and we try to explain everything so obviously we're a smaller thing than this other media entity but it's just always kind of like hilarious and depressing to watch artists just be like yeah i'm on this list that has literally no words <laughs> and just says 100 things without even <laughs> having like numbers attached it's like literally just like it might as well just be a uh, a stock listing you know and it's just like really that's what you all want okay all right oh uh, yeah i feel like it just i mean we could talk for hours more about the challenges of creating across the board whether it's music or writing or anything else but that's one of the things i've struggled with even with this podcast musicians can thrive it's a lot of the artists I'm talking to are small indie bands or and they they make good music they make full-time incomes off music or very close to full-time income so by any definition of the word they're successful as musicians but because they don't have that mass name recognition I, I put a lot of work into finding that interesting thing that's going to make someone click and listen and it's not easy but worth no. doing no and you know everyone says well we hate negativity and we don't hate you know we don't like clickbait blah blah blah. clickbait's bad and I, I don't read any clickbait but then it's like anytime that happens like it blows up i mean like the, the article i wrote on pay pay to play is still 
by far the most read thing ever in the history of Overload. And I think a lot of that was just because of how angry people were that it was happening. And then the people who were doing it, who were angry that I was talking about it <laughs> and, you know, and then Got other a reaction. People, well, yeah, exactly. And so it's just like, well, you know, like it, that's how it is. Or anytime. I mean, like the other thing that was probably the most popular stuff we did was when I was reporting on the South by visa debacle which I don't know if you remember, but basically it was when South by was saying that they were going to rat artists out to ice if they played unofficial shows. So if you were an international artist and they caught you playing an unofficial show, then they were going to let ice know about it. What the hell? Yeah, it was, it was a whole, it, it was like a national story and I, it was that. <laughs> and then I, I got brought on to write about it for fusion, which is now splinter actually. And now I, I think it doesn't exist in any form, but it was one of the Gawker network sites. So that was a huge thing. And, you know, it was just, that was a crazy situation too, because that was in 2016 before everything had really, really gone down. So people didn't, I mean, people knew that ice was bad, but it, it, it wasn't necessarily what it was at now, but it was wild watching that with like, you'd get a lot of traction just because there'd be people who'd be like, well, South by is totally in the right to do that. Like they, they're a business <laughs> and then other people being like, you know, fascist. And it was just, so of course that stuff blows up. But then when you're trying to write stuff about new undiscovered bands, it's hard to get people to pay attention to that or click on it. Even though all the time they talk about how, Oh, it just sucks. No one, no one talks about real music anymore. No one covers real music anymore. What does that even Soul mean? Garbage. I don't know. But then you're like, <laughs> here's this column we do that's all new music that's mostly undiscovered stuff, like brand new artists, you know? Oh, I don't know any of them. So I, I'm not <laughs> going to check that out. It's like, okay, cool. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I've proven man. the point here, but you know, it's, it's just <laughs> wild. And then, and then they'll also be like, Oh, you do nothing but negativity. And it's like 99% of what we do is like positive coverage of stuff. But because we write something about like a real issue in the music scene, like pay to play or, or whatever goes on with South by on any given year, people just are always just like, Oh, it's just, you know, you're just haters. You just hate on everything. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's so easy to dismiss something without actually thinking about it. People don't know what they want. Like it, it's <laughs> just, it, they, they want something that they've romanticized and they've made up, but they, they don't want to actually put, put the effort. I mean, and you know, like everyone's guilty of it. Like how often you, you see new music that pops up on like Spotify, but you just go back to your playlist of like slow jams, you know, like it's, you just kind of gravitate towards what feels good for you. So I get it. And I think when you're writing about music, you're kind of like, you're trying to find new things and you're trying to be supportive. And that's a, a trait that most people do not have. Most people I think all of us kind of have that example of something that we've tried to talk a friend into watching or listening to. Oh yeah. And you just keep telling them over and over. And then eventually they, someone else tells them, or maybe their partner is watching it and they watch it and they're like, Oh my God, I just watched this amazing show. And you're like, I've been telling you about that for years. Right? <laughs> so, everyone's got At one of those. Point, we all have overstimulated brains. And so there's only so much bandwidth we have to keep track of 
new things or remember to go, oh, when I have a free moment, instead of listening to something that I know I already like, I'm going to go look at something new. And I feel like that's part of why building that word of mouth where there's lots of people talking about you, that's how you have to prioritize building an audience in many ways. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of goes back to what I was saying with like playing college shows, because you want to get in with people who are passionate because the passionate people eventually are going to wear down someone and they're like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll give it a listen, you know, or they'll put it on a mixtape that they make for somebody or any of those things. You want to find those people because one person who's like that is worth like a hundred people who are just not really even listening at one of your live shows, you know, which is why you always see bands talk about how they played some show and it was only for five people. Like there was hardly anybody there, but they just played their hearts out. And every single person who was at that show remembered it and told all those other people. And like any, I swear any band documentary you watch is going to get to a scene like that. Like even the ZZ top one that's on Netflix, it talks about them. They played some club somewhere. And after the band that was on before them played, everyone left and lights go on when it's their turn to play. And there's just one guy there. And he looks around and sees that no one else is there. So he starts to walk off and they like beg him from the stage. They're like, just stay. We're going to put on the best possible show you can see. And he stays and they talk about how that guy still shows up to their shows and is like their most passionate fan. Because he remembers that that one time that they went above and beyond, even though there was no one else there. Mm. So. Yeah. At the end of the day, it, it matters. Yeah. So as a manager who helps artists identify the different sources of income that they can take advantage of. What are some of your favorite ways for artists to make money other than playing live shows? Well, I mean, live shows aren't even my favorite. Cause like if you're, if you're anyone other than the person who's actually playing on stage, they're like one of the worst things to deal with. Like, let, let me tell you how much it sucks being the person having to fight with a venue over what they're actually supposed to pay you versus <laughs> the nonsense numbers they're giving you about Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, sure. There were a lot of people buying drinks, but, you know, there's this other cost that you just don't know about. And that's why, even though we said we were going to pay you this, we're not going to pay you that. It's bullshit. But there's uh, the the stuff that, that, I mean, like the dream for any artist in terms of income is getting something like a a sync licensing deal, like getting your stuff added to like a a TV show that's going to pay you like royalties. Like, you know, I have one artist who, um, he he got tasked with doing like bumper music for UFC and oh. yes and that that has been like one of the greatest paydays ever and then which from artist that, is that uh Adrian Kroom he's a composer he makes really really incredible like dark wave music that I'm always trying to turn people onto but he's also like he's done work on the From Dust Till Dawn TV series he's done stuff for UFC ESPN uh, he's working on a movie right now called The Initiation that's got some of the people from American Horror Story in it. Yeah, wow. Adrian's great.
In addition to composing music that gets synced to networks like UFC, or synced behind the scene of a TV show or a movie, Adrian Kroom also composes sonically interesting music that he releases independently. And the song that's playing right now is called See In My Head from his latest album, Belladonna. And Adrian's like the artist I have who is the worst about like talking himself up. We'll be at, <laughs> we'll be at like industry events, like, you know, the Grammy parties and stuff like that. And uh, there'll be another composer there. Like we were at one, we were at the, the Texas Grammys does like a end of year party every year. So this year we were there and we're in a room where there's like a bunch of other musicians. Oh, most of whom are not anywhere near as uh, successful as Adrian, but he's always just like, Oh, I can't talk to that guy, man. I, I don't want to be a fanboy. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like you're, you're real. <laughs> you've done real <laughs> things. Like some of the stuff that you've worked on, like they would like, you know, kill to be on so we see graham reynolds walk in who's the, a composer who's worked with like richard linklater and stuff like that and does a lot of like really great avant-garde stuff around town and adrian like nerds out he's like oh my god graham's here and i'm like yeah man he's he's at these things all the time he's really nice he's really approachable oh no i can't i can't talk to him that'd be embarrassing i'm like we're gonna go talk to him and i'd been on a when they were doing the music census, Graham and I had been in the same like control group to kind of help brainstorm topics and stuff. So I went over to say hi to Graham for that. And then I introduced Adrian and Adrian's like, Oh man, I just like, you're just really amazing. And and then I was like, yeah, Adrian worked with a guy, you know, Carl Thiel, who's the main composer from the, from Dust of Dawn show. And Graham's like, oh, I love Carl. Like, that's great. And they had, they had this great conversation. And afterwards, I'm just like, Adrian, like you, like, you get that you're you're not a fan. You're like a peer of these people. Like, you can talk to them. It's it's fine. But he's just so, like, shy. But, yeah, so he's – a lot of his income has come from, like, sync stuff like that and getting placed on those and doing work for, like, music libraries. Because if you get placed on something that's, like, on a network, like, you're going to get royalties from it because of any time it's, like, rebroadcast or, you know, like, with stuff like UFC, if it's played on, like, pay-per-view in bars like you you mm-hmm. get a, a percentage not like a big percentage but a percentage but with how much money those things make like your tiny little percentage ends up being a good amount of money like way more than you get for playing like subs or something so yeah so that stuff's always good but that's a very hard world to get into and that's kind of like where the networking stuff comes in because the the primary work primary way to get in that is to meet music supervisors or meet people who work for sync companies austin still doesn't have a lot of companies that are working on that most of them are out in LA or New York so anytime there is someone who does that they, they kind of get like swarmed by everybody um but but yeah that that's always good like being on a soundtrack is incredible I mean there's also you know stuff like uh like merch if you do merch right that's a really good way a lot of artists right now they know what they're doing. They're putting their stuff up on things like Spreadshirt where they don't actually have to pay the cost of manufacturing and they can just get paid a percentage of what gets sold and it's print on demand. So you steer artists towards that because if you get a good design, like Katie has a lot of good designs, so her stuff tends to sell pretty well. But 
it can be expensive to make t-shirts on your own. So it's great if you can just put it up there and not have to worry about it and then use the money you make from that to make your own shirt. So you cut out the middleman later. But if you're a, a beginning band and you know, like, like let's say the song that blows up, but most of the people who are listening to it are in the Netherlands for some reason. So you getting a shirt to them on your own is going to be very difficult. But if you set up a spread shirt, then those people out there, they can just buy it and it just gets printed on demand for them. And there's tons of them. There's like spread shirt, red bubble, Society Six, like there's there's lots of those. I love that. I feel like getting merch to people is one of those hard logistic things. And so it can easily become a hurdle that you just put off and put off until suddenly you either forget about it or it just falls apart. But yes. especially while live shows are on hold, I've seen a well, lot yeah. of focus on promoting their merch but i think a lot of artists think oh well, i don't have the money to make t-shirts or i don't have the money to make tote bags or you know any of that so finding print on demand options is key because you can just you know put the link up on your facebook or your Bandcamp or wherever you want it and just encourage people to go from there and obviously you don't get as much money as you would if you had manufactured and mailed it on your own but, but also then you don't have to keep track of those logistics and figure out how to do it Exactly. And it also gives you like the email addresses and stuff. So you can start using that for your newsletters or whatever to mm. include them in on other deals. And, you know, so it's, it's great. And it's another one of those things where it's tough to get artists to like, look at it. Cause they're just like, Oh, I don't know. I don't know anything about that. I've never used it before. That's scary to me. It's like, I'll do it for you. Just give me permission. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So circling back to that, not playing shows too frequently it sounds like if an artist is trying to get to a place where they don't need a day job to sustain themselves focusing on getting syncs and revenue from merch is a way to balance that income while only playing once a month or so in any given city yeah, I mean, you know, it all comes down to like what genre you're in or any of those other variables. But yeah, I mean, ideally, you promote your stuff, get some traction for it, and then try to get on the radar of a sync company and also like a booking agency and stuff like that. Like that, you want to look at the thing I always tell people is to take a look at an artist who's a few steps ahead of you and look at their team, like go to their website or their Facebook and go through the about section and find out who's doing booking for them, who is running their merch, who's doing all this stuff, you know, who represents them for TV and film licensing and just try to get on the radar of those people. So you can start following those steps or like do whatever you can to try to get those connections. That's also where like a manager comes in because they can kind of help you connect with those people and help you network with them or figure out what you need to do to get on their radar. Obviously it's not perfect and it's not guaranteed, but there are certain steps you can take or certain things you can go to, to get introduced to those people that'll make it a little bit easier for you. But yeah, I mean like, you know, the, a lot of it too is just, it, it's all about like working smart rather than working hard. So mm -hmm. just making sure that you're going with the opportunities that are going to help get you somewhere, you know? So like it, like a perfect example is if if you get asked to open for somebody, is it something that makes sense? Is it a band that has 
a larger following than you? Is it a band that's in the same genre as you? You don't want to just hop on things just to hop on them, you know, especially if there's not good pay involved. Like with Katie, there was a point after we'd been announced on the ACL bill where this one sketchy venue had reached out to us wanting her to open for a group from LA and it just didn't really make sense. But, you know, we sent over the requested guarantee and the booker sent back this email just being like, Oh no, no, it's not going to work like that. We're going to give you tickets and you're going to sell the tickets and you get a a portion of the tickets. So pay to play. Yes, exactly. And I was like, you know, like, no, we don't really, we're we way past that point. And I was trying to explain, I was like, you know, we understand how pay to play operates, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And she was just like, Oh, well that's, that's bullshit. I don't think you know anything about pay to play. And uh, I'm just like biting my tongue. I'm like, I, I think I know a few things. And then, and then she's like, and I don't know why I would pay you this guarantee. Cause I only paid the headlining act a hundred dollars. And I'm like, okay, that tells us that this is going to be a gong show because they're coming out from LA. They're only getting a hundred dollars. We have a larger following than them and you don't want us to get paid for it. So yeah, I don't really see what, what this would be doing for us. And it's not like a venue. Don't want to just say yes to a show just to say yes to a show, because if it's not providing something for you, then it's, it's a waste of your time and there's something else you can be doing. But even in that situation, you know, like people always are like, Oh, well, if I do that, then what happens if another show offer doesn't come through? And within two days of us saying no to that, some huge offer came through. So I was just, having to tell Katie, I'm like, see, like, it's, it's going to be okay. Like, and now she trusts me on that stuff. But that was, it was just kind of funny. Cause she's just like, I don't, if we say no, like, you know, are, aren't you worried that that person's going to bad mouth us? I'm like, no, I'm not really worried about that. And <laughs> there will be better things coming. Don't worry. Yeah. It might be hard to say no, but sometimes it's just the best course of action. Exactly. Because the other thing too, is like, if, if you play a show like that and, and they're not willing to put any money towards like an artist budget, then what is the sound going to be like? You know, what Mm. is the staffing going to be like? What is the promotion going to be like? Because if they can't afford to pay you a reasonable guarantee, then it's unlikely that they're going to be putting any effort into getting word out. And they probably also cheaped out on the sound. So you're going to sound terrible. So even if there are people that are there, are they going to be hearing the best version of you? Or are they going to see like, wow, that was a mess. Definitely don't want, anything to do with anybody that had anything to do with that anymore. So, you know, there's those things to consider. And I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes there's things that you think are good opportunities and they don't work out and that's fine. You just move on from them, but you just always want to try to be finding things that are going to move you forward rather than keep things status quo or regress you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And a big part of that too is the networking thing. Cause I always try to get my artists to go out, to events like the Grammy functions or Austin music foundation events and try to get them to network and meet people with that. And cause a lot of artists underestimate that end of it. They think that, you know, shows are the only place for them to be seen and that's what they need to focus on. But you also need to be going to like industry events that are going to connect you, not just to your peers, but other people who work behind the scenes because people who work in licensing and people who work in those spheres, they're not necessarily going out to shows because they're they're so inundated with stuff anyway. So they're only going to meet you at 
industry events or conferences or, you know, like during South by that's a good networking opportunity because there's all these industry mixers and panels and stuff going on. So you don't want to just go like, Oh, this band that I like is going to be playing this party. So that's where I want to go. It's like, well, yeah, but it might be better for you to go to this industry function that's happening where there's going to be a lot of people that you're not normally meeting rather than going to a show where all these other bands, you know, are at and where all these other people you already know are at. You want to try to be getting your face out to people who you're not meeting in other situations. Yeah, definitely. Crossing paths with those new people is valuable. Yep. So as a manager, if someone were wanting to consider being a manager themselves, would you be willing to break down sort of the percentages of your income that come from management or any other sources that you have? Uh, Yeah. So it's definitely not a thing that you get into if you are looking for a stable source of income, (laughs) especially right now. I going into this year, management was making up the bulk of my income, but most of my income as a manager is dependent on my artists making money. So if they're not making money because they don't have any shows anymore, then that that is a huge hit to me as well. <laughs> uh, you know, like the South by cancellation on its own, if that was the only thing that had happened and that was like the only like blow that we got this year, that would have been bad enough because South by, even though South by itself doesn't really pay you, there are all these corporate gigs and other opportunities and stuff that go on that are very lucrative for my artists. And then on top of that with artists like Adrian, that's where we're making a lot of our like TV and film contacts for, for gigs for him. So when you take all that off the table, that wipes everything out. And then on top of that, most of my, my work outside of management is in creative consultancy for the sports entertainment world. So convention centers, stadiums, arenas, amphitheaters, stuff like that. Uh, So I could not possibly have been worse situated for this because every single one of my clients in every single sphere was hit really hard by this because no one's going like entire like sports leagues are just on hiatus now and no one is going to conferences and all the festivals are canceled or postponed or in limbo. But yeah, so I, I've been lucky that a couple of my big clients took this as an opportunity to focus on fixing things that I've been pushing them to fix for a while, like websites or, you know, some of their inventory control systems or working on branding, things like that. So I'm okay right now, but it was kind of weird that it shifted from being, you know, like 70% of my income was probably management and 30% was everything else to the other end now where it's gone back to now I'm back to 70% creative consultancy and like a tiny trickle of income from management. (laughs) But, Mm. but I think once this is done, it's going to recalibrate. It was just tough because we, with Katie in particular, we were heading into 2020 with a tremendous amount of momentum. Like she played ACL last year, which opened a lot of doors Magic. The way I'm falling for you 
breathing heavy, heavy, heavy. My heart beats steady, steady, steady. Don't know if I'm ready, ready, ready. I'm breathing heavy. This is new to me, this is new to you. And I don't know what you're trying to do, but you got me. You got me. This is new to me, this is new to you. And I don't know what you're trying to do, but you got me. Katie Rain also released a new single, and what you're listening to right now is that song called You Got Me. Her guarantee was at like 10 times what it was from when I started. We were working on sync and licensing deals. We were working on touring. We had more festival stuff coming through. And so all that just kind of like, it was like going 100 miles per hour and then having to come to a dead halt so that you don't run over something in the road. Like it was crazy. So, so we're all kind of trying to figure that out, but, but yeah, I mean like for, for most people, if you're looking to start in management, the, the thing that I strongly suggest is that with your, with your artists that you're working with that at the beginning, I advocate for at least six months of like a probationary time where you're working on a fee with your artists. So they're paying you either a weekly or a monthly fee. And then at the end of that six month time, you reevaluate to see if it makes sense to switch over to a percentage deal. And it's, you know, I have different deals with all my artists. It kind of depends on what they have going on for them, what sort of work I'm doing for them, where they need me the most, what their career is like at this point, all those things. But the thing, if you start immediately with just a percentage is it creates a problem of your almost certainly not going to make any money at the beginning, which is going to make it harder for you to give them as much focus as they would need because you need to survive too. And it also makes it so that they might not necessarily be taking it seriously because they're, you're not costing them anything. So they're not necessarily going to have everything else in place. And if someone can't pay a very reasonable fee with you, then that's going to give you an indication that they, they're probably not in a place where they are going to be able to do any of the other things they need to do to get their music to the next level, like pay for marketing or pay for a Spotify campaign or pay for the cost of touring or any of that stuff. Mm. Yeah. It's hard to make that work when it's not funded correctly. Yes. But this is a very unusual time and it's very like those questions are hard right now because normally it would be very different at this specific moment. Everything is very much up in the air and no one even knows what it's going to look like when things get back to us even being able to go out again. So. Yeah. I think one of the things I have noticed across the board is for creators of all types, this pressure of quote, quitting your day job and being able to throw yourself into just that one thing that you're passionate about. It's sort of a dying belief in terms of how it actually works out. Because if you have a portfolio of different sources of income, then you are more 
resilient when things like <laughs> quarantine hit or yeah. if shows are like maybe you get sick and you can't perform for a while, you can still have other sources of money coming in. Well, yeah, and that's why licensing and placements are so important because if you had like, you know, if you had a song that's in a movie and that movie is getting streamed, then you're still getting royalties from it. Or if you had a song that got used in an ad campaign, like you're still going to get money from that or with artists who have had like radio hits or whatever, like they're, they're still getting income coming in from that and from covers. That's also why publishing is a big thing where a lot of artists, they just don't think about publishing as much. But if you're, if you are doing well with that and you're able to get a publisher to come on board at some point and shop your stuff around and get other people to cover it, then that can really pay off for you because if you have someone who's even just a little bit bigger than you and is getting radio play and everything, then that's, that's free money that you're getting just for them covering your material. Yeah. Who doesn't want that? Exactly. (laughs) I love it. Well, I could, I have like so many more questions that we could just keep going with, but (laughs) I want to end here so that we can respectfully take care of your time. And I appreciate you coming on so much. This has been so helpful. And I'm sure that everyone listening is going to get at least one great thing out of this. Yeah. Thank you for having me on and happy to talk anytime. Please check the show notes for links to find Morgan's artists and their music, the Overload publication, and all that fun stuff. One last thing before you go today. There are techniques, strategies, and routines that work best for different people. With that in mind, I encourage you to consider this. What's one method of promoting your music, or promoting the music of an artist that you represent, that you haven't tried yet? That one thing you did, you know the one that felt really frustrating and felt like you wasted your time, it probably just wasn't the best fit for you. Maybe you've already started to suspect this. Either way, especially while we're all in varying levels of quarantine still, find something that you haven't tried before. Promote a song or a music video. But try doing it in a way that's different from what you may already know about promotion. Promotion.